You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. As the Secretary General said in his brilliant speech uh, earlier today, we are not winning. The crisis is still getting worse faster than we are deploying these solutions. And we need to make changes quickly. Emissions are still going up. All these promises of the last few years to cut emissions, emissions are still going up. When are we going to bring these emissions down? And, and just to put the science in a, a slightly different context, people are familiar with that thin blue line that the uh, astronauts bring back in their pictures from space. That's the that's the part of the atmosphere that has oxygen, the troposphere, uh, and it's only five to seven kilometers thick. That's what we're using as an open sewer. If you could drive a car straight up in the air at interstate highway speeds, you'd get to the top of that blue line in five minutes, and all the greenhouse gas pollution would be below you. We're still putting 162 million tons into it every single day, and the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the Earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century. Look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world. We have to act. So in answer to your question, I would say we have to have a sense of urgency much greater than we have yet had and we need have had and we need to make some changes. We've heard about divides at this conference between the north and south and the east and west. There's another divide increasingly between those who are old enough to be in positions of power and the young people of this world. Greta Thunberg was just arrested in Germany. I agree with her uh, efforts to stop that uh, coal mine in Germany. Young people around the world are looking at what we're doing. They look at the World Bank and they say, oh, you've got a climate denier in charge of the World Bank, so why are you surprised that the World Bank is completely failing to do its job? Secretary General says that. Everybody knows the World Bank is failing badly. Now we have the COT process. Okay, what do I say to these young activists that I train around the world when they come to me and they say, are you okay with putting the, the CEO of one of the largest oil companies in the world at, in as the president of the COP? Is that really okay? Well, it's not whether he's a nice guy or not or whether he's intelligent. The appearance of a conflict of interest undermines confidence at a time when climate activists around the world, and I'm partly speaking for them right here on this stage, have come to the conclusion that the people in authority are not doing their job. There's a lot of blah, 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 as Greta says. There are a lot of words and there are some meaningful commitments, but we are still failing badly. We need to have a supermajority process instead of unanimity in the COP. We cannot let the oil companies and gas companies and petrostates tell us what is permissible. In the last COP, we were not allowed to even discuss scaling down oil and gas. 
can't discuss it. A lot of the NDCs weren't even called for. Are we going to be able to discuss scaling down oil and gas in the next COP? Or, or, do, or putting the oil industry in charge of the COP? Is that going to tell young people around the world, we've just decided to not even disguise it anymore? Let me finish with this point on the, on the industry. You've had problems in your area where you tried to get legislation and the oil and gas industry came in and fought you, right? In my state, same thing. Every piece of pro-climate legislation at the national level, the regional level, the local level, municipal level, the oil and gas industry and the coal industry, they come in and fight it tooth and nail. And they use their legacy network of political influence and wealth to stop progress. The rest of us have to reform these international institutions so that the people of this world, and including the young people of this world, can say, we are now in charge of our own destiny. We're going to stop using the sky as an open sewer. We're going to save the future and give people hope. We can do it. And remember that political will is itself a renewable resource. לו הייתי את הפרח Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 544 of this podcast. Today is January 24th, 2023, and also a Tuesday. That was, of course, former Vice President Al Gore talking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland last Wednesday. And he's introduced in a mild manner as part of this panel discussing climate change and what the WEF, what global leaders like him need to do to save the planet, uh, supposedly for us, but I would say more rightly from us. And he gets a little worked up. He gets a little bit upset and angry in part because, as he says, these activists that he's training all over the world ask him, hey, what's the deal with the people who are making the decisions here? They have conflicts of interest. And he says, yeah, they do. You're right. We need to fix that. We need to give power to the people and let the young people pave the way to the bright new future, the brave new world that we're all needing to inhabit because otherwise we're going to keep on treating our atmosphere as an open sewer. Now, how did they get to Davos, Switzerland? How did these global leaders get there? Well, they flew there in their private jets. And are those carbon neutral private jets? Are they solar powered private jets? Couldn't this have all just been a Zoom meeting and wouldn't that have been better if they really wanted to put their money where their mouth is or put their transportation where their requirements for the rest of us are? Of course, of course. If there weren't double standards for these people, then they wouldn't have any standards at all. But he's not being genuine. He's not being genuine when he says that the oceans are boiling and there's this many Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs that are being exploded every day's worth of running internal combustion engine 
vehicles to power our economy, to transport us and our goods and our posterity from point A to point B. It's a lot of hysteria and demagoguery, plain and simple. It is demagoguery. This is such a departure from the American ideals that this country was founded on and which up until relatively recently, most of us thought our country still operated according to. This is a departure even from FDR saying the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, which is not true. I mean, there are things that you should be having a healthy fear of, and that fear will cause you to be careful, but single-factor analysis based on one, the sky is falling, <laughs> and two, give all of your wealth and power and liberty to these unelected so-called global leaders, and they'll save you from the sky falling on you. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. It's not healthy if we do that and give all of our power over to them and all of our wealth and all of our liberty. It's also not healthy in the first place that they are demanding that and then claiming that we're all going to die unless we do. Michael Schellenberger, he's one who has been involved in the release of the Twitter files, thanks to Elon Musk spending his billions of dollars in an actually good cause buying Twitter and trying to make it more free for public discourse. Still not so free that I'm able to get back on, but I can still root for progress in a real sense, even if I'm not getting everything that I think would be more appropriate, more correct. But Michael Schellenberger wrote a excellent book on this subject of climate hysteria. In his work, Apocalypse Never, he explains how he was a climate scientist. He was one of these people like Al Gore who was warning about climate change and global warming and all the rest. And then he realized at a certain point that his own child was freaking out and that this is a really unhealthy thing to tell future generations that basically there's no future for them. They don't need to study if there's no future for them. They don't need to plan on getting married and having children if there's no future for them. They should just give up or all become activists if the climate hysteria is correct, if that's valid. But it's not. It's not valid. And as Schellenberger documents in Apocalypse Never, the claims that are being made are as hyperbolic as can be, and they are driven by a conflict of interest. The climate change activists will say that big oil companies have a conflict of interest because they're in the business to make money off of producing oil and gas and encouraging us all to keep on using oil and gas. Some say that we're all addicted to oil and gas. That's not correct. Rather, what would be correct is to say our modern economies operate off of the energy produced by oil and gas. And as such, to remove the fuel source is to make it difficult to impossible for our economy to keep on running, or at least it won't be running the way that it has been. The electricity has to be generated 
somehow, some way, it just so happens that it's been generated by fossil fuels. Al Gore alludes to the evil aggression of Russia against Ukraine. And let's set that aside for a moment. The fact that Russia stopped exporting energy to Europe is to say that Europe was buying oil and gas from Russia. And when Russia all of a sudden said, no more, it really threw a wrench in Europe's ability to generate electricity, to generate heat, to keep the lights on. Literally, they had to go into energy austerity mode because they were dependent on Russian oil and gas. For him to say, oh, you know, you guys have pivoted really well. You can say whatever you want to support your foregone conclusion of winning and having staked your reputation on it, having put your neck out there, having invested heavily in so-called renewables and sustainable businesses. You have a profit motive as well. And you're encouraging these other CEOs that you're talking about, these other business leaders that you're talking about, these other politicians that you're talking about to either join you or be destroyed. And I'm not talking be destroyed when the earth ceases to be a habitable planet. I'm talking be destroyed in that you will destroy their reputations. You will drive them from corporate boards, from C-suites, from ownership of their companies or from their companies being profitable, you'll destroy them. And so then when they jump on board, because they're very interested in not being destroyed by you, you say, ah, well, they're, they're sounding more enthusiastic. But what's really going on here is that this is a revolution. You are trying to carry out a global revolution for leftism and globalism and to institute a one world government. Climate change is your lever, but I'll be honest, I don't buy that the big idea is to stop climate change. I think climate change is the bogeyman. I think the real goal is to bring about a one world government. I I do. I think that that's the case. And yes, that is to say, I think that this is a political conspiracy. I think that this is driven by vanity and conceit and hubris, and megalomania. I think that all of the talk of poor people who are supposedly being disenfranchised and unequally impacted by the effects of climate change, I think that is really just a cover for you trying to virtue signal and dress up your megalomania as something good so that we let you do it, so that you sucker people into joining your cause, getting on your side. I, I think that's what it is. It's creepy stuff. It's really creepy stuff. But it's also not just creepy. It's also really scary stuff from the standpoint of what is the impact on boys and girls who are hearing this when they turn on the TV, when they listen to the news when they go to school in the public schools, when they read a book, you know, what is the impact on boys and girls hearing this as they're growing up? Schellenberger's book is, I think, very clear. The impact is that kids are giving up on the future and that's dangerous. What is the effect 
on their psychology when they don't see the point in going to school. They don't see the point in having hopes and dreams for the future. They're convinced that the world isn't going to last, not even long enough for them to have a life. If I'm right, if I'm right that this is actually not about climate change for the people at the very top, this is about trying to get and hold power over the entire world, that this is about world domination, world conquest, if I'm right about that, then it is a very evil thing that is being done to young people who are giving up on life based on a lie. It's a very, very evil thing. Not to mention all of the adults who are then bullied into silence or else robbed of economic opportunity or else they have their reputations destroyed. If they disagree with you, if they contradict you, you call them climate deniers. Basically, this is the creation of a two-class system wherein if you trust the quote-unquote science, the settled science, you're a good person. As long as you get active and you do everything that they tell you to do and you give them everything that they tell you to give them, then you're a good person. Then you're a victim or you're an activist. But if you disagree with them, if you say, well, wait a second, that doesn't make sense, or no, I don't want to give you that, or no, I want to be free to do this other thing based on my religious convictions, based on my philosophical positions, based on my opinions that I formed on my own, looking at the evidence instead of being told what to think, well, then you're a bad person. You are going to be related to the same way that people who didn't want the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, the lockdowns were related to. You're going to be related to the exact same way. So buckle up because you're going to be maligned. People are going to say, I literally hope that you die. You deserve it. They're going to be abusive towards you. They're going to try and drive you from the workplace and from polite society, from schools and other academic institutions, scientific institutions, publishing companies, media organizations, government. You know, what it reminds me of is some of what I've read about England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland when the Book of Common Prayer was put forward. And not everybody had a Book of Common Prayer that was coming from the official Church of England when it was announced that holding services from any other work was forbidden. Nonconformists suddenly found themselves by rule of law forbidden to lead churches, to continue on being pastors, reverence, leading congregations, clergy. All of a sudden, they found themselves forbidden from preaching and teaching and even holding public office or even living in towns and cities within so many feet or so many yards of other people. They were literally cast out and sometimes thrown in prison. And it wasn't to say <laughs> that they had the Book of Common Prayer to preach from, that they were not allowed to preach any other way or conduct services any other way. But the big idea wasn't that we have the substitute that we're forcing everybody to go to ready. 
The point was, this is a way to eliminate our political rivals. Because first and foremost, this isn't a question of prayer and church services. First and foremost, this is a question of politics. Who's causing trouble for the ascendant regime? And can we leverage the claim of risk to your eternal soul to go after people who disagree with us, who contradict us, who challenge us, who we otherwise would have to persuade or compromise with or listen to or give way to. That's the same sentiment that is driving Al Gore and his army of activists. As he says, he trains activists all over the world. He's been propagandizing for 20 years. He failed his bid for the presidency. And so now he just goes all over the world trying to become president of the world. But it's weird. It's super weird. Because his own father, Al Gore Sr., at one point served as vice president of Occidental Petroleum. He was on its board of directors. Not just, he was also on the board of directors for several other companies. But what's driving this? I mean, what what is driving the campaign against oil and gas that is so virulent, that is so angry? It's not just that Al Gore Jr. is passionate. He's angry at oil and gas. Is this a proxy? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Because in the words of Konstantin Kisin, you're not going to be able to convince poor people to keep on being poor just because woke idiots in the West decided you don't get to have the lights on. You don't get indoor plumbing. You don't get refrigeration and grocery stores and automobiles. You're not going to convince the poor people to keep on being poor. But then these folks who are meeting up in Davos, Switzerland with the WEF, they're not trying to really persuade us. They're just trying to confuse us long enough for the deed to be good as done. They're acting like they're for the little guy and they're going to stand up to the big business. They are big business. They act like they're going to stand up to the politicians and the government status quo. They are the politicians and the government status quo. So then this is just totalitarianism scaled up. This is the internationalists realizing that they have to scare people. They have to terrorize the world into giving them what they want. And so they are. And they will terrorize you with the so-called science if they can. And if that doesn't work because you're questioning, you're double-checking, you're disagreeing that the evidence supports their conclusions, then they will terrorize you by threatening your social standing, your economic wherewithal, your ability to function in society. And they are. Not they will. They are. They have been for 20 years. That's how they've gotten as far as they have gotten. And they are planning on doing it even harder and with more energy. But consider, if you will, a bit of reporting from Not the Bee relaying a BBC article about something Japan's prime minister just recently said. The headline is Japan PM says country on the brink over falling birth rate. And Joel Abbott over at Not the Bee, his summary is Japan's prime minister just said the nation is about to fall apart because no one is having babies. 
Here's some quotes from the BBC report. Japan's prime minister says his country is on the brink of not being able to function as a society because of its falling birth rate. Fumio Kishida said it was a case of now or never. Japan, population 125 million, is estimated to have had fewer than 800,000 births last year. In the 1970s, that figure was more than 2 million. Birth rates are slowing in many countries, including Japan's neighbors, but the issue is particularly acute in Japan as life expectancy has risen in recent decades, meaning there are a growing number of older people and a declining number of workers to support them. Some highlights from Joel Abbott, researchers estimate that the population will more than have to 53 million by the end of the 21st century. And beyond that, he asks the question, do you seriously think Xi Jinping isn't licking his lips at the thought of expanding China's territory further into the Pacific? China also is shrinking, but they are not going to shrink faster than Japan. And it would be a huge win culturally, psychologically, politically at home for China to absorb Japan. It's not just that people are not having babies. It's also that older people are getting older all the time and there aren't enough younger people to take care of them because those older people didn't have so many kids and their kids are not having so many kids or are not having any kids. And it's not just Japan. It's a lot of countries, particularly in the West, in Europe, here in the U.S. as well, that are seeing fewer and fewer young people having children. And it is, I would say, directly connected to our having rejected God's authority as it pertains to who we are, where we come from, why we're here, where are we going, what are we supposed to be about? And yet we can't shake the idea that there's a problem. There's something broken in creation, and it somehow relates to us. There's something like a sin problem, except the sin problem has to be, apart from God, apart from the Christian message, burning fossil fuels, over-consuming, over-producing. That's our sin. And there's the need for scapegoats, sacrificial offerings to the gods, or in this case, the planet. You may remember I talked here a few episodes ago about bankless shows on YouTube and this way of thinking about that part of human nature that is unhealthy in its competitiveness against the people around us. And Liv Boyery, world-class poker player at one time, now a game theory expert, says that Moloch is what we should call this unhealthy competition that's willing to sacrifice even our own children for an advantage over others. Christians have been saying this for quite some time, for 50 years, really, here in the U.S., that abortion is like the nations that God drove out of the promised land so that he could give Canaan to Israel, offering their children as sacrifices to their god, Moloch. Christians have been saying abortion here in the U.S. is like the ancient Canaanites offering their children in the fire to Moloch. And now we're just going to call it that and say, yeah, we should probably resist. But see, 
the folks who are saying we should resist don't have an adequate substitute for devotion to Moloch. And so I would say the resistance is futile. And once we're just calling it that, you're going to have other people who are going to be very Machiavellian and they'll keep up pretenses for a while. But then the mask is going to come off and you're going to realize, oh my word, this is satanic. This is evil. But the people we're dealing with, because they've already rejected God having any authority over the affairs of men, particularly they themselves, they're not going to heed the call for repentance or the stern rebuke. In fact, it's just going to make them angry. And they're going to say, oh, you're a climate denier. You're a science denier. You deserve to die. We have to get rid of you so that we can live. We have to drive you from the economy to save the planet. It's little to no different than the Mexica, or as you may know them, the Aztecs, having performed these human sacrifices at an incredible scale in Tenochtitlan, what they used to call the modern-day city of Mexico City. We're going to sacrifice these captives, these men and women and children, on our pyramid to the corn god so that the corn god blesses our crops so that we can be prosperous. And while we're at it, why don't we just eat the sacrificed captives as well? Not for no reason did the Spaniards show up horrified and quickly sign on to the offer of an alliance with the surrounding tribes, the surrounding peoples who were tired of being sacrificed. (laughs) They were tired of having to send tributes of men and women to the Mexica. But now we look at this and because it's going to be called something different and because it's going to be put forward as so-called science, and because we're thinking that ours is a secular age, a lot of us are not going to recognize what this is until it's a little late. I'm, I'm quite sure. I'm quite sure some of us are already on board and we know, ah, this is pagan. This is some weird pantheism gearing up for human sacrifice, that level of anger and dehumanizing of anybody who disagrees, trying to marginalize them, trying to drive them from society, calling them evil. That's the warm-up to an all-out crusade and inquisition against the same people who are being targeted right now. It's a warm-up phase. First comes the rhetoric, then comes the action. And for our part, we need to know what we're about and what we believe and what is true and who are we and where do we come from? Why are we here and where are we going? What should we be about? We have to know that and be clear on it. You know, I'm reading a book right now by Mark Morano titled The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown, published back in August. Publisher's summary reads as follows. Welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. This is the vision of the Great Reset, according to globalist leaders. While proponents of the Great Reset push slogans like Build Back Better, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and a New Normal, the Reset is nothing short of a rebranded Soviet system threatening to strip away property rights, restrict freedom of movement and association, and radically reshape our diets and way of life. 
in The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown, best-selling author and ClimateDepot.com publisher Mark Morano unveils the origins of The Great Reset, who is behind it, how it is being implemented, and how COVID-19 and the alleged climate emergency accelerated its imposition on the United States. Packed with telling statistics and damning quotes, The Great Reset is the essential handbook for the public, the media, and activists on how to critically analyze and expose the tyrannical policies silently strangling our liberties today. I'm very close to being finished with it. I'll give you a fuller summary when I'm done. But for now, let's just say that COVID was the warm-up. And that's by the admission of the folks Klaus Schwab has been organizing for 50 years. The response to COVID globally was just the warm-up. That was practice. Climate change is where they're going to really turn up the heat. They're really going to, no pun intended, try to change the world's climate. Their goals, their aspirations are nothing short of terraforming the consciousness of humankind. Our political processes, our economic activity, our health, our ability to express ourselves, everything. Because everything, they will argue, needs to be brought to the table to save the world. The more they try to save the world, though, apart from God, the more desperate their anger will be against those who say, hey, wait a second, this doesn't work, or that's not true, or that's not right. They won't want to hear any of that, and they will get increasingly animated and hostile. Al Gore, at the beginning of that clip that I played at the top of this episode, he was calm, he was polite, and then as he goes along, he's getting increasingly worked up until the people who are sitting around him look actually a little bit nervous. I mean, they're nodding, but it's a nervous kind of agreement like, oh, yeah, yeah, please don't yell at me. Please don't point the finger at me and unperson me. You know, I think of, again, this whole business with Stephen Crowder and The Daily Wire, particularly Jeremy Boring, but also Ben Shapiro, co-founders of The Daily Wire. Those two have had a public back and forth trading videos explaining why they have clean hands, but the other is in the wrong here. I've listened to a little bit of Candace Owens weighing in on this. I'll just say, I think some of how she's articulating what Steven Crowder did is regrettable. It's unfortunate. Ben Shapiro seems to be very genuinely hurt and offended. And all of them regarded one another as friends. Stephen Crowder seems to have regarded the folks of the Daily Wire as friends. They seem to have regarded him as a friend. And it feels like a betrayal on both sides, on all sides. Candace Owens is reaching for the claim that this is all about money for Stephen Crowder. He is just doing this for money. I think that's unfortunate because it might not be as simple as that. It might be as simple as, hey, I got into this whole business thinking that we were going to be more altruistic than it turns out we can afford to be. Not even 
And in my view, like I've said in recent episodes of this podcast, not even that I can entirely blame the Daily Wire for doing the math, running their ship as a business. I hear what Jeremy Boring is saying. It makes sense from a certain point of view, or at least I respect that they have the freedom to run the Daily Wire as a business. They're trying to keep the lights on. They're trying to keep money coming in. And it's just the fact that they need big tech. They need social media. They need Facebook. They need Twitter. They need Instagram. They need YouTube. They need Google in order to be profitable. They need advertisers in order to be profitable, in order to do what they're doing, the way that they're doing it, at the scale that they're doing it, the level that they're doing it. I understand that, and it's extraordinarily bitter to hear it said so matter-of-factly, to see that Daily Wire is as big as they are because they essentially operate within the boundaries that big tech that is on board with this globalist push, this leftist push, has established. That's a bitter pill. It really sucks. But if I'm Steven Crowder and I'm thinking, man, I'm going to go join these guys, and I love what they're doing, and I love these guys, and then I actually look at the terms sheet, and the cynical person might say, he's only complaining publicly because he thinks he can make more money. That could be projection. That's a possibility. But actually, you know what? The wisest counsel with regards to this that I've heard so far has been Andrew Clavin's. And I like Andrew Clavin. I think it's unfortunate that his son is gay, but I like Andrew Clavin, even if sometimes I think I would respectfully disagree with how he frames some issues surrounding the sexual revolution and the LGBTQ plus push. He has some very wise counsel with regards to this whole business with Stephen Crowder. He likes Stephen Crowder. He thinks it was a moral error. It was a failing on Crowder's part to record his phone conversation with Jeremy Boring and to publish that. But he respects him as an individual commentator and wishes him well. Please, by all means, if you don't like the way that we're doing business, compete with us. And if you're successful, then we will have to adapt our strategy and probably implement some of what you're doing. But see, I think I think part of the problem here is, like Andrew Clavin says, there are some really bad people doing some really evil stuff. And that's where our attention should be directed. Think back to Saving Private Ryan, if you've seen it. Early on, there's the potential for it to get really ugly within the group of guys who are going out there to save Private Ryan. Because there's some guys in the group who are very open and honest about how this is FUBAR. Because I don't know that guy. He's got a mother. I've got a mother. You've got a mother. Hell, even the captain's probably got a mother. <laughs> We've all got mothers. Why would we go and kill ourselves trying to save this guy who's got a mother? He doesn't understand. And it's about to get really really unfortunate. And do you know what the captain does to shift everyone's attention? He changes the subject because you know what? If they start killing each other, 
That's worse than going out there and getting killed by Germans, getting killed by the actual enemy. If we become each other's enemy and we destroy one another and ourselves, that's worse than if we all get pointed back in the right direction again. But the captain brings up this bet on whether anybody can get him to talk about what he was doing before the war, what his backstory is, because he's been very tight-lipped about it. He asks, what, what's the bet up to? And then everybody stops, and they were just about to kill each other. They, they were so close. <laughs> you don't know when to shut up. You don't know how to shut up. And then they just stop because it's like, wait, what? Hold on. What's going on? It's like a lion tamer, right? It's the distraction piece. I was just talking with my cousin Brent about this on Sunday afternoon. We had the pleasure of Brent and his wife, Natalie, stopping in to visit. They were in Colorado for a concert. It was really great to see them. Really, really great. It had been too long. But he was explaining how lion tamers do their thing. That lion is ready to take the man in the cage apart piece by piece. And the lion tamer's got a chair in one hand. He's got a whip in the other. And when he sticks that chair in the lion's face, the lion all of a sudden is confused, trying to figure out which of the points of the chair to go after, which of them is threatening him, which one he should attack because the chair is right there next to his face. And while he's trying to figure out which of those points to focus on, the lion tamer cracks the whip behind him and it causes the lion to go into a little bit of a reboot. You hear the windows sound. <laughs> now it only lasts for a little bit and then the lion's going to snap out of it. And if the lion tamer's not figured out where else he should be by then, well then that trick might not work again this time. He probably ought to get out after taking his bows. But it's kind of like that in the scene from Saving Private Ryan. Except I think Andrew Clavin, I think he's not trying to be manipulative at all. I think he's exactly right that the focus needs to be on the people that we disagree with. I think that guys at the Daily Wire are doing a really good thing. I'm a subscriber. I'm going to keep on being a subscriber. If Steven Crowder starts up something, I hope it's in good faith and I hope he does well. I would like to see him moderate some of what he says and how he says it. I would also like to see some of the guys at the Daily Wire moderate some of their tendencies. I don't disagree with what they say. It's somehow not a major concern to me most of the time what they say. I find myself agreeing with a lot of what they communicate. Not all, but a lot. But they could use a tune-up. And I I hate, I agree with Stephen Crowder. I hate that the terms and conditions are, if you get booted off of these big tech platforms, we're going to cut your pay by this much and this much and this much and this much. Self-censorship is it, it's written into the contract. That, that's what it is. He's right about that. Now, is he right to say in his moment of frustration, disillusionment, or maybe mercenary exploitation, if Candace is right? Is he right to jump from, I don't like that this is what you're offering me, to you guys are corrupt? I'm not so sure. And I could be misreading Andrew Clavin and Ben Shapiro and Jeremy Boring, but I don't think I am. I don't think I am. I think that 
tensions are high and there's a sense that some ground has been gained, but it's still going to be a long slog. And there's a lot of people that just frankly don't want to be persuaded. They're more persuaded by Al Gore's angry rant on the stage at Davos than they will ever be by however good of an argument Matt Walsh, Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Andrew Clavin, Candace Owens, of course, are going to make. Brett Cooper has some good things to say, but she's not necessarily, first and foremost, a persuader. She's a reactor. I'm glad she's there from what I've seen, what I've heard for the most part. But there are bad people doing bad things, trying to convince you and I that the world is going to come to an end unless we give them everything. And based on what they do with what they already have, I am not nearly half so concerned about what's going to happen with the climate as I am what's going to happen as they get more and more wealth and power for themselves. I'm not half as concerned about what kind of a world my children would grow up in and live in and raise families in, God willing, if we kept on using fossil fuels to power the economy. I'm not nearly so concerned about that as I am concerned about the Klaus Schwab and Al Gore's of the world and the Bill Gates of the world taking away economic opportunity for my children, taking away individual freedom of conscience, of speech, of association from my children. You know, part of what I am trying to figure out right now is what does local political engagement in Greeley, Colorado look like? And I'll be honest, even just having the conversation feels like a challenge because there is such a low level of hope. Not where principles are concerned, not where the truth is concerned. It's like everybody agrees. Yeah, no, the truth is X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah, but it'll never work. Why won't it ever work? Now, the more of us that say it'll never work to push back on these very dangerous ideas trickling down from the very wealthy, very powerful folk in Davos, the more of us that say it'll never work to push back or try and mount a defense at the local level, the more guaranteed it is that that is the way that it's going to be. With that attitude, you're right. It'll never work. With that attitude, you're right. Now, where did the principles of the founding fathers generation of Americans go? And think about what it would be like to be in their shoes. On a new continent, you've got the danger of exposure, starvation, illness, hostile Indians, wild animals. And yet somehow they were reading their Bibles. They were having church. They were getting married. They were having children. They were working. Last I checked, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Somebody else can plant a flag if they want to, but he who sits in heaven laughs. <laughs> He's laughing at you. <laughs> this world is not going to last a second longer or a second shorter than God who sustains it once. And I've read the end. And the people who are trying to get us all excited about eating crickets powder and synthetic meat and taking 
implanted biochips. They're going to track our movement and our social credit score will be tied in with whether we've gotten the COVID vaccine every year for the past 20, whether we've gotten any strikes against us on YouTube, on Google, on Twitter, on Instagram, maybe not Twitter anymore because now Elon Musk, the world's foremost manufacturer of electric vehicles, that guy, hey, he owning Twitter, that's a problem. And that's all you need to know to know that this is not about electric vehicles and renewable energy and sustainability and saving the planet from climate change. This is entirely about politics. It's entirely about power and global domination. You know, consider all of the ramifications, and they are many. They are very, very many. And think of a little piece that Answers in Genesis published back in 2006. This has been out there in the public domain, as it were, or the public square would perhaps be more correct, since, oh, my wife's and my first Christmas together as husband and wife or thereabouts. Dr. Andrew A. Snelling wrote The Origin of Oil, and he talks about whether oil is a fossil fuel. Why do we call these things fossil fuels? And how many people actually know why we call them fossil fuels or what evidence there is for that? Or if I may, how that evidence might be interpreted differently for the Christian who reads their Bible and believes it. So for instance, just think to yourself for a moment about the claim of secular science, that this oil comes from decayed plant and animal life that died millions of years ago and got buried deep underground. We're talking in some places thousands of feet. Some places it's very shallow, but here in Colorado, in Wyoming, in Montana, in North Dakota, we're talking thousands of feet underground and not a little bit, a lot, a lot of biomass that decayed and turned into oil and natural gas, supposedly. What if actually a close examination of the evidence setting aside the presupposition of an old earth and no God yields potential supporting evidence for a global flood, if this is what used to be organic material. Perhaps a global flood is what destroyed these plants and animals and then buried them deep underground. Maybe, possibly, or maybe God put these things there and they have an inorganic natural origin, so to speak, because God, when he created the heavens and the earth, he just put this natural gas and coal underground for us to find and to utilize towards the end of fulfilling the dominion mandate, the way that we are. It's an interesting thought. I want to live in a world where we are free to talk back and forth about such possibilities without being destroyed, mocked, derided, driven from the public square, driven from schools and colleges and scientific organizations 
and corporations and clubs and churches and government. I want to live in a world where you are free to actually question the science because that is good science. That is sound science and settled science. I want to live in a world where we are free to study and to pursue and to challenge and we are not censored and punished and destroyed whenever we disagree with the consensus of the super wealthy who claim they are trying to save the planet. Fine print there, ladies and gentlemen. They are trying to save the planet from us and our posterity, not for us and our posterity. But allow me, if you will, to delve into some other subjects here that might seem like they are not related, but they are related. Holly Ash over at Not to Be published a piece almost a week ago. These two movie stars nearly lost their marriage to depravity and vice, but they cleaned up their act and have now been married longer than anyone in Hollywood. If you're about my age, you remember there used to be a show on ABC called Boy Meets World. And Boy Meets World was part of the weekly routine when I was a kid. You had Boy Meets World, you had Home Improvement, you had Family Matters, Full House at a certain point was not reruns. These were fresh episodes, actually. But shows like those used to be the mainstay when I was a kid. Boy Meets World, Mr. Feeney was the teacher who was always trying to guide Corey and his brother and his friends in the right direction. Well, the actor who played Mr. Feeney, the public school teacher, is a man by the name of William Daniels. And William Daniels and his wife, early on, both in Hollywood, he an actor, her an actress, they had what is known as an open marriage, where they basically agreed that they could see other people. And it was no big deal because everybody's doing it. And this piece from Holly Ash over at Not The Bee explains how that was miserable. It was a miserable thing. And they realized it doesn't work. I think Will Smith is a good example of why it also doesn't work. Men and women are different. Now, I've been talking here recently about how actually a close examination of the Bible, more than just tradition and conventional wisdom, must lead us to conclude with Martin Luther, by the way, who agreed with me, because we're both right, of course, that the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn polygamy in the sense of men being permitted by God to have more than one wife. But universally, adultery is when a woman who's already married has relations with some man who is not her husband or when a man has relations with somebody else's wife. And in our very immoral society that sometimes, like particularly on this subject, borrows more from Greek and Roman history and tradition and custom than it does from the Bible, Old Testament and New. Our culture, our society believes in radical egalitarianism. And this is one of the things that comes of rejecting God's authority and 
the authority of God's word, more to the point. Sola Scriptura, when it is brought to bear here, needs to not have anything added to it or taken away when we start talking about what God has commanded, what he's prohibited, and what he hasn't. But Mr. Feeney, George Feeney, and his real-life wife, Bonnie Daniels, they gave up on the whole open marriage thing, and they're still together because the open marriage thing doesn't work. It's not a question of who likes what in the short term. It's a question of how did God make us? Who are we? Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? What are we supposed to be about in the meantime? If you pay attention to how God made us, you can be like the man in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of Yahweh. For on it, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water who yields fruit in its season. And the wicked are not so. Moving on, consider the curious case of Ivan Provarov. The Wall Street Journal has a piece, a little bit of opinion and commentary, titled, Ivan Provarov went to a hockey game and a culture war broke out. The Flyers, defensemen's detractors push liberation at the expense of American pluralism and tolerance. And you've really got to pay attention to this story because this is where it's a package deal. It's like a bundle with combating climate change that homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, queerness, and yes, soon to be pedophilia are being pushed on us in exactly the same way that climate change hysteria is. And actually in exactly the same way that COVID vaccine mandates and mask mandates, social distancing, lockdowns were pushed on us. Why? Because it's all a game to these people. The people calling the shots, that is. I'm going to play a little clip of Ivan Provorov being asked by reporters about why he wouldn't wear the damn jersey when... It was supposed to be a special night for rainbow flags, not rainbow flags representing how God promised to never again destroy the world with a flood like he did in Noah's day, but rainbow flags to identify the hockey players with homosexuals, bisexuals, transgendered people, queers, and soon-to-be pedophiles. Take a listen. Here is Ivan Provorov explaining himself. A strange turn of events before the Flyers hosted the Anaheim Ducks tonight. The team wore pride jerseys during warm-ups to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community. However, defenseman Ivan Provorov would not join them on the ice, citing his Russian Orthodox beliefs. Here's what he said after the game. Yeah, I, uh, I respect everybody and I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all I'm going to say. The Flyers issuing this statement. Here's how it reads. The Philadelphia Flyers organization is committed to inclusivity and is proud to support the LGBTQ plus community. Many of our players are active in their support of local LGBTQ plus organizations. And we were proud 
to host our annual Pride Night again this year. The Flyers will continue to be strong advocates for inclusivity and the LGBTQ plus community. By the way, Provorov did in fact play with the squad after warmups. So there you have it. There you have it. He played with the team and also didn't want to take to the ice prior to the game wearing rainbow flags because of what they would symbolize, because of what that would communicate, because that would communicate that he is supportive of the LGBTQ plus agenda, which the Flyers organization is being pressured to publicly support. They will be rewarded if they do, but now they're going to be pressured to punish him or else they will be punished. Very similar to how if Steven Crowder were to sign the contract with the Daily Wire and go over to them and a boycott campaign were threatened against the Daily Wire and against him after he had signed the contract, he would lose a great deal of compensation that is in the contract and therefore be pressured on the front end to self-censor, not to repudiate anything he had already said, but to not say it in the first place, if it might jeopardize the profitability of the Daily Wire. I can understand that is to say his concerns on the front end, and maybe it is best if he just goes and makes his own thing and competes with them directly. And maybe it is for the best if they keep on doing what they're doing and see how it goes, or Maybe it would be for the best. If this is damaging to them to have the terms of the offer sheet that they offered to Crowder publicly stated, made known, if that would be uncomfortable for a lot of conservatives who tune in, who do wonder, hey, why do you guys stop short of saying what seems like the terminus and the conclusion, you're creating a chilling effect. You're setting an example for others who are also going to then stop short of saying that part that would really, truly threaten the folks that you say you are opposed to. You're trying to operate within a system that has as a foregone conclusion that you cannot win. Do we want that? Very similar, the whole Pavarov business, in my view, in my view. But there's a certain news person by the name of Sid. <laughs> Reminds me of Toy Story. Sid was the kid who liked to torture the toys, as I recall, in Toy Story. Uh, a certain Sid responds to Flyers Ivan Provorov boycotting Pride Night pregame. This from Breakfast Television on YouTube. Take a listen to what Sid has to say. Um, two things, three things, technically. Provorov also spoke to the media after the game and, and echoed what Tortorella said, so I didn't feel the need to run it. Um, this happened in baseball last year with the Tampa Bay Rays. There were five members of the Tampa Bay Rays who wouldn't wear a patch supporting gay rights. Mm -hmm. And Major League Baseball didn't do much. It was a story for a little bit. Um, John Tortorella, you know, uh, many years ago when... Um, you know, racial injustice, and it still is till the stable. When, racial, when, when Colin Kaepernick first started kneeling during national anthem, said anyone who does that on my team is going to sit. And he has a, he has a son who's an Army Ranger. So it's not like Tortorella in the past hasn't spoken on on, on sensitive issues. Um, the theme from the National Hockey League is hockey is for everyone. Okay. 
The theme is not hockey's for everyone, dot, 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 unless you don't believe in gay rights, then do whatever you want. If the National Hockey League is going to do this, if any league is going to do this, do it properly or reevaluate what you're doing. Because there's not a lot of repercussions that I'm seeing from any league. Now, it could change with the NHL. could change with the NHL. I think you find the Flyers a million dollars for this. I'm not kidding. Figure this out and stop offending people on nights where it's not about that. It's supposed to be about inclusivity. The National Hockey League need to attack this and figure this out. Because what I heard last night was offensive and didn't make any sense. Because, for instance, if that was a military night, okay? Right. If anyone in Canada or in the States on a military appreciation night wouldn't wear a jersey pregame, do you have any idea the uproar that would have happened on that? Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea the backlash? Do you have any idea what happened on social media? It's, it's, it's ridiculous what would well, happen. Look, it was just a minute ago we were talking about the uproar that was happening with FIFA fever, where it's, if you were seen with so much as yeah. a rainbow anywhere, you had to fear for your life, imprisonment, or death. Yeah. Seriously. So, and now here we are. I, I just think the NHL has to do something here. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. Hockey is for everyone, dot, 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 unless, unless you don't agree with gay rights, is not the phrasing of this. You're either in this or you're not. And one last point. Nothing scares me more than any human being who says, I'm not doing this because of my religious beliefs. Because when you looked in people's lives, you normally say that publicly, you'd throw up at what you saw. You would throw up at what you saw. And I have seen that a million times in a lot of different ways. So don't, don't give me that. With respect. Don't give me that because no one's perfect. All right? Don't, tell me, don't, don't feed me the religious beliefs line. And all of a sudden, the NHL is going to back off this. The National Hockey League today needs to find that organization a million dollars and reevaluate how they support gay rights. Because that is insulting. That is the number one trending topic in Canada. That is insulting what happened in Philadelphia. And if the NHL is serious about this, they say they are. We'll see. Mm -hmm. We'll see how serious they are today. But that whole thing was mishandled. And, I, and I, part of me couldn't believe it. Part of me could, considering how the NHL sometimes handles things. And it's too important, and that's why you're continuing to talk about it, because you're not just going to brush it under the rug. Well, okay. So who is this guy? Who is Sid? <laughs> what is he doing here? <laughs> Breakfast television, often abbreviated as BT, according to Wikipedia, is a Canadian morning television program that is broadcast on Rogers Media Television Network City TV. As of November 17th, 2020, BT is only broadcast in Toronto while the versions in Vancouver and Calgary were cut. Versions used to be broadcast in Winnipeg, Edmonton, and Montreal, but have been canceled and replaced with alternative programming. The version broadcast by the Atlantic Satellite Network, which was owned by City TV's former parent, Chum Limited, and is now owned by competitor Bell Media, continued to use the brand under license from Rogers until 2011, when it was relaunched as CTV Morning Live upon the services branding, blah, 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 blah. Who cares? Who cares? These are Canadians who have seen their market share go down and down. And that is to say that sometimes... Such considerations do fuel what people say, what angles they take, knowing that such are going to get clicks and views. But I note here, even though YouTube has turned off the ability for viewers like you and I to see downvotes on videos, this video has a total of 319 upvotes, 
by contrast, if you scroll down and you look at the top comment from six days ago from a guy by the name of Pureblood, he says, we stand with Ivan Provorov. He's got 2,000 upvotes. Sam Spade says, I'm not even a Christian, and I support Ivan for standing up against idiocy. 462 votes. Upvotes, that is. Jose Saldana says, and I quote, I respect everybody and I respect everybody's choices. Provorov said following the game, quote, my choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to comment on that. If you have any hockey questions, I'll answer those. End quote. Well said, Yvonne. 658 upvotes. This is to say, if you scroll down into the comments section sometimes on videos like this, you can get something of an idea for how the other people watching these videos really feel by whether there are more upvotes for the dissenting opinion that is not supposed to be the mainstream. It's not supposed to be broadcasted. The powers that be in charge at YouTube and Google and Twitter and Facebook and not so much Twitter, but still, I'm not back on. I'll put it that way. They don't necessarily want you seeing how many upvotes, downvotes these videos get with a view to potentially shrugging off what is supposed to be the agenda moving forward. It would seem to me that there are more people who support Provorov's position here than there are people who support what Sid at Breakfast Television has to say. But I want to play for you just a little bit of the coach's comments and what the coach has to say when he's asked about this after Provorov not coming out on the ice what the coach has to say is part of why Sid thinks the team should be fined a million dollars. And Sid includes this because apparently Sid at Breakfast Television thinks this is damning. Here's the coach of the Philadelphia Flyers when asked about Provorov not donning the rainbow jersey for Pride Night. He's being true to himself and to his religion. This has to do with, with his belief in his religion. And it's one thing I respect about Provy. He's always true to himself. Uh, and so that's that's where we're at with that. Um, was there any consideration on your part when he chose not to wear the jersey to not play him as a result? No, no. I'm not going to answer him any more questions on it because I, I just think it's unfair. Uh, I know you're going to probably talk to Provy, but... Um, yeah, that, 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 I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I, I think it was a great night in celebrating. Uh, organization has put out a, a statement, and I'm not going to get too deep into the conversation. And so there you go. I'm not going to answer many more questions because I see where this is going. And I don't think this is fair, but who boy, can I take a step back and phone a friend have a minute. Can I take a breath? <laughs> Can I think about this for a second before it gets too out of hand? Here's the thing. This coach needs to have the back of his player. Sid, whatever his last name is, I don't really care. I'm not good with names and I'm definitely not going to try and memorize Sid's last name, whatever it is, or even go look it up. Sid. We'll just call him Sid. Because that's all YouTube calls him. Is Sid responds 
Okay, who's Sid? I don't care. Uh, Sid is trying to pivot on hockey is for everyone. Not hockey is for everyone, dot, dot, dot. What this reminds me of is Diversity Day from The Office. If you're not familiar, here's Michael Scott's take. Hey, we're not all going to sit in circle Indian style, are we? <laughs> Get out. No, this is not a joke. Okay? It was offensive and lame. So double offensive. This is an environment of welcoming. And you should just get the hell out of here. Okay, let's go. (laughs) Can I just say, when I went to Cedarville University, this episode was one of our classroom sessions. Diversity Day... That episode, episode two of season one of The Office, was one of our classroom sessions to talk about diversity and how maybe not to approach it, Professor Green presided. A black man, by the way. It was a great, great episode. It's part of why I still enjoy The Office to this day. But nevertheless, did you know that on August 22nd, 2021, the Comedy Central channel removed this episode from its reruns of the show because supposedly it was too offensive. That's what I think of when I hear Sid from The Breakfast Club. I'm sorry, Canadian Breakfast Television, BT, saying, Hockey is not for everyone, dot, dot, dot. Hockey is not for everyone, dot, dot, dot. What you really mean is hockey is for LGBTQ plus leftist progressive indoctrination now, but not for Ivan Porforov. So you're a place of inclusivity and acceptance and toleration. So get the hell out. The same is going to be applied to every area of life until they, the powers that be, the folks trying to rule the world from Davos, Switzerland, are content that they have crushed our will to resist or to disagree. Now, here's a funny little bit. Republicans propose bill to replace income payroll taxes with national sales tax, abolish IRS. Now, I guarantee you this reporting from Ben Zeisloft over the Daily Wire will rise and fall on the second to last paragraph. Biden responded to the proposal by asserting that the national sales tax would increase prices on everything from groceries and gas to food and medicine. Republicans, the last paragraph reads, have often called for the abolition of the IRS and voted earlier this month to reverse the windfall offered to the agency by the Inflation Reduction Act, which you heard at the top of this episode, Al Gore said is really first and foremost about combating climate change. So this is the Green New Deal from AOC in disguise. Quote, this bill will eliminate the need for the department entirely by simplifying the tax code with provisions that work for the American people and encourage growth and innovation, Carter said in the press release. 
quote, armed unelected bureaucrats should not have more power over your paycheck than you do, end quote. Will it go anywhere? Republicans proposing it. The beginning and end of any meaningful change is that question. Will it succeed? And if we say, no, it won't, and we don't try it, we don't put it forward, we don't require that our political opponents, our philosophical opponents, our social opponents, our theological opponents have to stand and be counted and say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm against that, but I'm not going to articulate why. Don't make me. Well, then it will never, it will never work. And so long as we stand to profit from there being a kind of status quo maintained that we are already profitable in more than the uncertainty of a future market condition in which we actually achieve the objectives that we say we are going for, we will play scared about going beyond the status quo by enough to make a meaningful difference. I'm not saying that the Daily Wire is wrong to exercise their right of self-determination, but I am saying that I think that Stephen Crowder is right to point out that this is de facto big tech setting the ceiling for how effective conservatives can be in communicating their positions. They get to pick who is going to be the most successful based on who will most closely align with their boundaries. They get to pick who will be the controlled opposition in a kind of quasi-free market condition. And staunch conservatives who are thinking first and foremost of free market principles, not first and foremost of where we find ourselves right now, will say the Daily Wire is a private entity. They have the right to do what they think is in their self-interest. Full stop. Those who are paying attention to what is actually going on relative to these principles will say they are free to do what they're doing, but that doesn't mean that it's right for them to be doing what they're doing. And Steven Crowder can be right. And those who say that the Daily Wire is free to do what it is doing can also be right. And these are not mutually exclusive options. And it can be the case that Jeremy Boring and Ben Shapiro and Andrew Clavin and Candace Owens and Michael Knowles and Matt Walsh all think that this is the right call. This is pragmatism. This is prudential. This is how, this is how we advance our principles in the long run. And yet, if the people who are setting the ceiling for you just lower their ceiling now that it's an open secret – that they get to control how much these guys are compensated and that these guys who work for the Daily Wire self-censor according to what will potentially get them kicked off of these social media giants, well, then Steven Crowder is onto something. And it's not an either-or. And the Daily Wire folks can feel offended. But here's the thing. Here's the funny thing. When they have $50 million to put into hiring Steven Crowder, they have $50 million that a lot of folks who have not been trying to operate within the boundaries that big tech has established don't have at their disposal. And so there's a domino effect wherein 
The Daily Wire is financially self-sustaining and successful and therefore presumes to speak on behalf of all those who have sacrificed something to provide conservative political commentary and a pushback against the leftist agenda. They presume to speak on the basis of being wealthy and high visibility. And what do people like me not have every bit as much to say because we're not financially in a position to be offering some talent who's up for grabs $50 million. People like me don't have have advertisers. People like me don't have $50 million to offer. If the way that you get $50 million is by playing it safe enough and non-threatening to the leftist agenda enough to have $50 million, well then, Steven Crowder has a point. And if Provorov gets thrown under the bus because he refused to put on the jersey and go out there on the ice and he wanted to keep it quiet enough, well, then maybe he is more the ideal of the conservative that we hope we will have, but also he is easier to shut up and squash. And are we actually playing to win or are we playing to maintain the status quo in hopes that somebody else takes the hit and we get the windfall. There's a saying that I've said to some comedic effect over the years, the early bird may get the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. And that's true when it comes to political conservative commentary, theological conservative commentary. The early bird may get the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. And I, to some extent, can acknowledge what the folks over at the Daily Wire are saying. Hey, the left is our main focus, the Al Gore types who are trying to take over the world and disenfranchise our children. And they don't care if the whole world is like Japan, collapsing because there's not enough workers to fill the jobs that are needed to keep the thing running. I take Andrew Clavin's point. I respect him. I like him. But at the same time, I think to myself, I'm in no position to accept or reject such an offer, in part because I have said, no, what's true is true. What's false is false. And if I'd gotten as far in my pursuits as Ivan Provorov has gotten, being a hockey player for the Philadelphia Flyers, maybe you would have heard of my name before now. But the trouble is that it's not y'all need Jesus, we all need Jesus. And it's going to take a miracle to turn this thing around. Maybe we get that miracle. Maybe we get some divine intervention. We should definitely pray for it. But at least we shouldn't sell our soul to gain the whole world. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm absolutely sure of. The rest, we'll see. We'll see how it pans out. Heaven only knows how this all pans out. Lord willing, in the creek don't rise. We're still deliberating over these things in 20 years, 30 years around the fire, smoking a cigar, debating how we used to see it, now how it played out. I hope it plays out well, but financial solvency does us a whole lot of good only if, only if we're actually breaking through that ceiling that the left has created online to prevent meaningful conservative gains. 
I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.